Okay, end of technical difficulties, but something tells me that's not going to be the only difficulty we have this morning because of the nature of the passage of scripture that we are studying, right? So, um, before I begin, I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to see just a show of hands of any of you who have grappled with this scripture or heard the passage we're doing today or heard it taught in such a way that just had a positive or a negative effect on you. Positive or negative, have you ever? Okay, great. So I I would love to take your temperature, the temperature of the women in the room, and just find out what were some of the takeaways or what are some of your understandings of this passage of Scripture. Today I'm just going to deal with verses 1 through 6. I know it says 1 through 12, but I think what concerns us the most today is verses 1 through 6. <laughs> right? So I'd love to hear some of your uh, your comments that you have to make. If you wouldn't mind sharing something that you heard about this passage that you have grappled with. Okay, I'll start. No, okay. <laughs> Carmen? Are you talking good or bad? Good or bad. Okay. Well, a bad one was probably when I was a youth. They took verse 3 to say that you couldn't wear any kind of jewelry or any kind of fancy hairstyle or anything because of that verse. Yeah. So I think that was probably not the correct view on that. Or at least to a point. And then the good part was, I think that... Um, when husbands and wives do this thing God's way, it's a dance, and it's not one above another, but it's someone has to lead, and someone has to follow, like in a big, like in a dance or in a big corporation. If if the leader doesn't listen to the underlings, so to speak, and the underlings don't have anybody to follow, it's a it's chaotic. So this is God's way of making the dance work. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, that was going to be mine too. I taught at a at a small Christian school. It was actually a church based Christian school, and the and the students there were from everywhere. And one of them, uh, the girls that was in my class, was from a super conservative church, and she was not allowed to wear makeup or jewelry or anything. And it was based upon the teaching of the scripture. Have any of you ever encountered that before? Yeah, yeah, Anne. So this is embarrassing, but when I was my first year in seminary, this uh, guy asked me on a date, and um, the purpose of it was for him to read me this scripture about a gentle and quiet spirit that he was not observing in me. Not not surprised and yes. Um, I've, I've uh, experienced several instances where men tend to use it as a weapon to lord it, so to speak, over women mm-hmm. and say, you know, I'm the head of the family. I have absorbed mm-hmm. or observed it in, in Christian, you know, God, godly people mm-hmm. who uh, where where the wife feels like she has no say in anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She just has to say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Sarah. I think it's kind of a 
a hard thing to figure out what is your personality mm-hmm. if you're a not a quiet person and what is like a God-given quiet spirit. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of something I think I grapple with and not, yeah. not naturally super quiet. <laughs> yes. Yes, right, exactly. Well, so we're going to discuss that today. And, uh, and, um, We're also going to discuss Peter's focus in this letter. It wasn't like Paul's. It was discussing relationships, but it was discussing relationships. I got into this with, with uh, Nancy here. Um, it was just, uh, there, um, his focus, unlike Paul's, was, uh, the relationships that the people had to their community that were evangelistically based. That's called apologetics. It was an apologetic way of interacting with their community. And he's mostly concerned with that. Paul, when he writes about relationships in the church, essentially, he's writing from a theological standpoint about how the way that Christ related to his church is the way that we relate to one another. So that's a difference in the way they talk, okay, and the way they're writing to these different congregations that they have stewardship of. All right, so I think we're ready to begin. In 1983, I went to Israel. My best friend at that time, Jan Majors, had a sister who was living in Ramallah. It's a Palestinian town that uh, is 12 miles north of Jerusalem. Becky and her husband, uh, Tucker, they taught at the Quaker school there. And it was then that I learned that in Israel or in that part of the region, at that time there were two systems of authority. One system was the Israeli government. And it overlay another system. And this other system of authority was far more entrenched in the culture in Ramallah and in the region, actually. In fact, it was the authority that held the most power over the people in the region. It was the ancient tribal authority of the Palestinian people. Who, uh, As we walked the streets of Ramallah, it was not unusual to see an older woman dressed in a long black shift... Uh, her arms all covered, um, and it was decorated. These shifts were decorated with elaborate, bright-colored embroidery, and they wore head coverings just the same as you would imagine when you look at your nativity scenes and you see Mary, and, you know, that's the way they dressed. And uh, But walking alongside this woman uh, was a much younger girl, and she was dressed in a t-shirt, and her hair was loose and uncovered, and I saw this multiple times. And I learned later that this was a Palestinian grandmother, and the younger woman was her granddaughter. And the embroidery that was on their, on their, their, on her dress that I was so attracted to, it, uh, was identifying the tribe that she belonged to. Um, and then her granddaughter, I was told, would eventually reach an age where she would be expected to dress like her grandmother. Each village, Ramallah included, was judged by a muktar. And the people would go to this person whenever they had a dispute that needed to be decided. It was the system of government that flew under the radar of the Israeli government that was now, as they said, occupying their land. But it was not the government that these people acknowledged and submitted to. That Israeli government, they didn't. The govern- that government to them was foreign. And it was not for them, that government. They didn't see it as for them. They saw it as against them. And they saw it as a government that was not to be trusted and not to be submitted to unless they were coerced and they had no choice. Uh, 
The readers of Peter's letter were kind of in a similar situation. However, Peter tells them something much different. He does not tell them to not submit, to not trust, to not uh, do anything unless they were under coercion, unless they were forced. He tells them that their ultimate authority is God, that God is their muktar, as it were, that he is the muktar that they should trust and and entrust themselves to because he is the only muktar who will judge them fairly and impartially. And if they want to honor him, to honor God, then they must do as Christ did. They must submit. They must submit to injustice because this honors their great muktar. Uh, they're ultimately under the authority of their great muktar. That's their, that is their goal. And uh, that for the Palestinian people, that would be uh, to submit to the authority of the Israeli government. And if we, as we read in Second Peter, or I'm sorry, excuse me, First Peter, chapter two, he's telling them not to rebel, not to revile, not to threaten but to submit as Christ submitted to God by going to the cross. That is a picture of suffering for the good of God's plan, God's will. And that's the foundation of everything that's written in in 1 Peter. Absolutely everything. And you can never separate what you read in there from that foundation. Okay, And we get in trouble when we do. And you've heard me say this before. I'll say it again. I liken it to my wedding ring. You see, my wedding ring has a very valuable stone in it. To me it is. I don't know how valuable it really is. But to me it is. But it's surrounded. It's all of the meaning of this wedding ring is to be found in its setting. The setting has wheat shafts that go up the sides. The setting has a scripture verse, John 12, 24, that is inscribed in the middle of it. That scripture says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the reason this is a symbol for Bob and I is we were single till 33 and 35. We are good at being single. We were really good at it. But God called us into marriage and said, you're better together than alone at this point. And you will bear much fruit if you will let go of all that independence that you had in your single life. If you're going to be married, we're going to start learning to become interdependent. And that's the way it is with the body of Christ. We have to learn to become interdependent. And Peter is talking about that as that how that interdependence that we learn with one another in our marriages and out of our marriages and in the body of Christ, that is what gives glory to God and evangelizes their community. It's the way they behave. What they believe is reflected in their behavior and in the way they treat one another, even the unbelieving husbands. Sometimes we forget what's gone before when we do these Bible studies, and we can forget that this is one letter and why the author is writing. So I'll just do a little reminder. Peter's the Bishop of Rome. He's writing to the believers in Northern Asia. These are believers that have been kicked out of Rome. 
and they've been sent to these satellite towns in northern Asia. They're satellites of the Roman Empire. So they're still really under that jurisdiction and authority and the belief system of the Roman Empire. They have been purged from Rome because they're threateningly different. They're, and we'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. These believers are really discouraged because of the persecution they've been experiencing because they are still threateningly different. They're discouraged to the point of losing heart. So Peter writes to them to tell them how to hold on, how to live in this cultural environment that is so hostile to them. He encourages them, and as he does that, he addresses cultural matters which come into that picture of enduring this hostility. It's important you don't separate that. He's not talking to everybody everywhere. He's talking to these people at this point in time, and he's talking to them about this cultural issue that they're having as believers in this hostile environment. He speaks into their lives as they're grappling with the issues of their day, their time, and their place in history. And if he was writing to us, he would write a very different letter, I'm sure. If we were in the same thing, experiencing the same thing, I think his letter would sound a lot different. Um, I think that he would try to help us with the same things, but he would perhaps use different examples and make, make a few different points, but we don't know. So we'll just go with this. So we so so. But however, we still have to ask ourselves these questions: How do we, in our time and in our place in history and in our culture, how do we understand this ancient foreign letter written to ancient foreign Christians? Because it still applies. I propose that we strive, that we read it, and we strive to understand it using a lens. And the lens is this. And if you want to, you can write this down if you think it sounds like a good lens. Okay? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. Shall I say that again? Have, have you ever heard that? Okay, so for, for those that haven't ever heard it before... In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. And this is what I mean. And I'm going to focus on essentials. Okay? So as we read this chapter, what's essential to our faith? Christ. Christ is essential to our faith. Always making him known. Peter says it over and over and over again. Promoting the gospel in our words and in our actions. Or in our non-words. Choosing not to speak. But still our actions. It's a real Holy Spirit driven thing, isn't it? That's his focus. And as I said before, it's an apologetic one. It wasn't Paul's focus. It's Peter's focus to this group of people. His intent is to encourage these Christians to live in such a way in this hostile culture that their lives, their very way of living, their behavior defends the gospel from criticism. That it dispels the uh, the scandal that, that is related to them. 
that the way that they live become is evangelical. That the way that they live is is evangelical because it's winsome and it's peaceful. It doesn't in and of itself cause strife. So living honorable lives before God at all times, first and foremost, we should all do that. It's essential. It transcends time. It transcends culture. All Christians of every race, in every time and every place and every cultural culture in the world should live honorable lives before God at all times and do it in such a way as to bring honor to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to bring shame upon it. That guides our behavior. It guides our behavior not just in our marriage relationships, but in every relationship that we have. Everyone. Um, What is non-essential is how we go about doing that. In some cultures, people dress in certain ways, and it's thought of as modest and godly. In another culture, another time, another place, like, remember when the missionaries went to Hawaii? Remember that? And one of the first things they wanted to do is dress those people in Western clothes because the way those people were dressed was immodest to them, right? But it was a culturally driven thing. So how we honor God and how we promote his kingdom, how we obey the gospel, we do that in lots of different ways. Our cultures that we live in, our places in time and in the world have an effect on how that's defined. And by the way, this is a phrase that you will read again in First Peter. Um, and I'm really curious about it. It's the phrase, obey the gospel. Does that, do you like, does a meaning just come up and you go, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. I know what that means. Do you? I don't. I didn't. So I looked it up. And I found some great answers. And so I really want you to, I hope that you will like take this and stick it in your head and and understand it when they say obey the gospel. This is what they mean. This is what these authors mean. Uh, Obeying the gospel is to illustrate by our actions, by our behavior, that we believe that Jesus Christ is the redemptive plan of the true God. It means that we live our life oriented around the unique, holy glory of Jesus Christ. And in that way, it is putting our faith in the person of God himself. And then I found this other definition, and I loved this. To obey the gospel is to heed and respond to the royal summons. The royal summons. The royal summons to come up under the lordship of Jesus Christ, to ally oneself with him, to follow him. And our job is to proclaim that summons as this is the way that God gathers his elect out of the world. As we proclaim that summons, we proclaim it, but by his Holy Spirit, God is the one that opens the ears and disarms the hostility of man's heart to the gospel. There's two ways to proclaim that, with words and with deeds. Now, this is something we don't understand. It is the culture and the understanding of the world 
that this letter was written into and therefore the issues that it was dealing with. So this part of Peter's letter and also Paul's letter was a common form of letters, instructional letters, and this part is called the household code. It's called the household code. You'll find Paul writing, Peter, I don't know if anybody else, but anyway, those we know. And it's because there was a belief and an understanding in the Greco-Roman society of how important it was that we had a well-run household. Because you see, they believed that the well-run household was the bedrock of the ultimate stability of the empire. If the household was unstable, the empire was unstable. And as long as those in society's most common and mundane structure, the household, as long as they were living rightly, then the security of the empire was assured. So Greek moral philosophers, they wrote about this. They wrote about proper relationships in the household. They always wrote about slaves to masters, because that was such a part of their society. And and uh, actually, I'm going to stop right here because I listened to Jen Wilkins, and she said, why do you think they donated 16 verses to slaves, six verses to women, and one verse to men? And she said, because there was a hierarchy. There was a lot for a slave to lose in that society. There was less, but just as much, for a woman to lose if she did not submit to the authority of the society. And there was a lot less for the men to lose, too. So that was her perspective. You know, it was like, it was like that. And she also said this, and I don't know but what you guys think of this, but she said that um, the, uh, the reason why pastors will focus on the women is because we don't have slaves to focus on in our society. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense to me, but I'm not sure about that. Anyway, okay. So Greek moral philosophers, this is true, they wrote about the proper relationships in the household. Slaves to masters, wives to husbands, and children to parents. And you will find this if you read Plato's Republic, if you read Seneca's Moral Epistles. If you read Aristotle's Economica, these are the things that they taught in the schools in, in that society that they based their culture on. This tells us that Peter, he knows that. And he and Paul also, they're writing uh, in a cultural form. It's, it's familiar. It's understood. Of course they would be writing like the letters, instructional letters of the day. Of course they would. The worldview of his audience is influenced by the Greek moral writings. writings. However, rather than basing his perspective, Peter's perspective, in Greek moral philosophy, he and Paul, theirs are deeply rooted in the tradition of the Old Testament. They are giving instructions to Christians who have realigned themselves. These Christians have realigned their socio-political loyalties which was their society, to the kingdom of God. They've changed. They've become different. They're not the same. They're not the same as their neighbors anymore. It's a new kingdom. It's a different kingdom. But these Christians are expected by Peter and Paul to live responsibly in their society. That glorifies God. So the point I'm making is this. 
Because the household was understood in Greco-Roman moral philosophy to be the foundational unit of their civilization, the influence of suspect religions like Christianity on the family was scrutinized and was suspect, suspect, not to be trusted. They were afraid of it. Their society was. Peter is especially concerned that the freedom of the gospel expressed in the Christian household was expressed in such a way not to provoke unnecessary accusations against Christianity because, and this is, this is an essential, the whole world is watching. But at the same time, he understands that the gospel of Jesus is subversive. It's always going to be suspect to the, to the Greco-Roman social order. They're afraid that it was going to tear it apart. And therefore, the cornerstone of his teaching is the example of Jesus Christ, whose undeserved, unjust suffering for the benefit of others was the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. And that's our paradigm. That's an essential that we take. It's a paradigm for all Christian relationships, everywhere, every time, every place. Okay? Last week, Carmen guided us through Chapter 2's discussion of the slave-master section of this code uh, very well. And slaves, like Christ, they submit to the for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of drawing all people to Christ by their godly behavior. How are the people in this society going to ever know Christ but by these people's behavior, right? And today we're going to talk about, I'm only going to deal with the first six verses, the discussion of husbands and wives. I told Carmen last week, I said, you set me up beautifully. And because as you can read, chapter 3 begins with the word. It begins with the word likewise, or in the same way. Uh, Wives are to submit to unbelieving husbands. Likewise meaning continuing along the same line of thought. I said it reminds me of a Lego, you know. Likewise, it's like those little pieces that stick out and clicks it into the next piece. It's like, okay, now this new piece is going to look different. It's going to have a different color, but it is in the same thought as what he just said about slaves. So try to remember what he said about slaves last week. It's important to remember that in the first century, what goes on inside the home is understood to be society's business. Is that the way it is here? What goes on inside your home? How, what do we say to each other? It's none of your business, right? Not there. It was their business. Because why? Because what went on inside the home uh, affected the security of the, of the empire. That was their focus. Keep this empire secure and strong. Yeah. Um, But here's what else was going on in the marriages of that culture, of that day, that I will say, this isn't going on in our culture, and it's not going on in our day, but this is what the women in those Christian women, what they had to deal with, because this was in the culture with all the people that they rubbed shoulders with every day. The rule of patrifamilias, that was going on. The rule of patrifamilias meant that the wives were owned by their parents first as the daughters, 
And then they became the property of their husbands. And you know what? I was thinking about this. I was thinking, um, so there's a little carryover, you know, a little bit in our Christian weddings because don't we say, who gives this woman? And I remember when my dad walked me down the aisle, he responded, my mother and I, but here's the difference. My Christian mom and dad gave me or led me to marriage to my Christian husband and I was a Christian woman and and it was it was it's just a totally different, very different circumstance than the women Peter's talking to right now. Anyway, they were given as their fought to their their husbands as property. And um, when I was in Ramallah, we heard weddings going on. I heard a wedding one night. It went on all night long. And we heard the... And laughing and singing and dancing. And uh, a constant beat of the drum. And later I learned something about what was going on. The men get married at age 30 there. But the women, their wives, they're 15. Because the men had to work to earn the gold jewelry that they would give to their wives that belonged to their wives in case, you know, I don't know. I don't know why. But probably in case something happened. And I was visiting with one family, and uh, it was uh, Renee Bahu, a woman named Renee Bahu. And she told me that her father married her mother when she was 14, her 30-plus father. But she was too young to consummate the marriage. So what he did was just took her into his household until she grew older. But he said that he would braid her hair and send her out to play. I was like, okay. (laughs) Do you think her mother had a choice at age 14? No. But do you think something like that might was going on with these women? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Um, Patrofamilias, the second thing. The head of the family had the right to decide if a family could afford an infant that was born into the family. If not, the Patrofamilias would take the baby to the temple to either die of exposure and neglect or be taken in and raised as a slave. A very different perspective than we have, right? It's because we've been affected by Christendom. Our society is very affected by Christ. The wife was expected to adopt the religion of her husband and worship his gods. She also could have no friends of her own. If she were to adopt any religion other than her husband's, that violated the Greco-Roman ideal of an orderly home because prosperity and well-being were seen as dependent on religious forces. The gods decided their fate. They had to cater to the gods. They blamed the gods. No, they didn't blame the gods, but they, they blamed something. They had some, in some way, not pleased the gods, and they always had to appease the gods. It was just different. Disorder in the home was a threat, not only to the family, but to society. Christians were frequently blamed as the cause of the public calamity. They were an easy target because they introduced a new god, and they upset the religious status quo of the empire. This is what Peter's writing into. He's writing into this belief system. And he says, what I imagine that's ha- what I say, what I imagine that's happened is that the women have been given in marriage. I don't know. But pro- I'm wondering, were they also non-believers when they were given in marriage? Maybe. And then maybe they became believers, but not their husbands. Or perhaps these Christian women were given in marriage to pagan men. I don't know. 
But when I walked on the streets of Ramallah, I would often see one of the Ramal, uh, one of the Palestinian tribal women that was dressed the way I described to you before. I'd see her and her children following a man dressed in Western clothes. They followed along three to four feet behind this man. I learned later that that was her husband. That that man, uh, and she was expected to do this. To, she and her husband, children were to walk behind him. And one time, the most bizarre thing I ever saw, I saw a woman, because the, the Palestinian women, they would carry everything on their heads. From the market, they would carry things on their heads. I saw a woman carrying a kitchen table on her head. <laughs> right? It was upside down. And this legs were going up. Where was her husband? Where do you think he was? Three to four feet in front of her, swinging his arms, carefree, not a free. And I'm like, okay, if I impose my society on theirs, what do I come up with? Yeah. Right, but I can't do that. You can't do that. And I also, you cannot lift this scripture out of its setting and expect to draw any understanding from it. But I think those bad teachings that you heard, that's exactly what went on. I propose that if you want to understand these verses in a more literal fashion like that, well, you can go right ahead. But the women that Peter is addressing in this letter, they have lives that are very different from yours. There is no comparison. So submission is for all of us. It is. It is. It's an essential. It is. We have to. It glorifies God and it helps our communities to understand who God is because we treat each other with respect. And, uh, but what that submission looks like, that's a non-essential. Dressing, stuff like that. Okay, so now we're ready to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. But uh, after I got, I started out that way, but I'm, I'm going to wait and teach you ver, verse 7, which is about husbands. I'm going to teach that to you next week. i got lots of time. I get to teach two weeks in a row. <laughs> All right, so this is what it says in the NLT. It says, in the same way, in the same line of thinking, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Now, don't forget he just talked for 16 verses how the slaves had to accept this authority. You know, remember I told you there's two things going on here, all right? Two authorities that are in play. You've got to accept the authority of your husbands. And then if some refuse to obey the good news, they're not Christians. They're not obeying the gospel. Your godly lives will speak. The way you live will speak to them without any words. And they'll be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles and expensive jewelry or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God. They put their trust in God. They put their trust in God. 
They entrusted themselves to God. Their lives were hard. They entrusted themselves to God, their great Mukhtar. Don't ever forget that. And they accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do that. When you do what is right, without fear of what your husband will might do to you. Whatever, what he might do. Whether he will come to Christ or not. You just do what is right. Keep going forwards. Do what is right. Live Christ in your household. In some way, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. And we're, we're gonna assume that, well, he's talking to, uh, women who have unbelieving, uh, husbands. Perhaps he's talking to men who have unbelieving wives. I'm not sure. But, however, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Whether she believes like you do or not, she, maybe she hasn't adopted your religion. Um, maybe she has. She may be weaker than you are, physically weaker. That is, Jen says that's the point. It's physically weaker than you are. But she is your equal partner of God's gift of the new life. There's never any talk about men and women being equal partners in anything in this society. You've got to understand that. They're not equal in anything. And here Peter is telling them that they're equal partners. They're equal partners in the inheritance that they have in the living hope that they have they are equal Um, and he says so you must treat her as you should as your equal partner in the new life because if you don't God won't hear your prayers and what's really important to them in this society that the gods hear them remember All of their financial success is based upon the blessing of the gods. Well, if that's what they're carrying into their Christian lives too, well, then they must be thinking all the hope that we have is in Christ. It's got to be. That's the last thing they want is for God not to hear their prayers. The hidden beauty of the heart. And this is where we're going to land today. Let's imagine for a moment that that woman of Ramallah that I was telling you about that was carrying the kitchen table on her head, let's let's imagine that that she knows that she, she that she becomes a Christian. Let's imagine she becomes a Christian. Let's imagine that all those things that Peter wrote about in the first part of this letter, that she is part of a royal priesthood, that she shares in this glorious inheritance, that she, do you think she's going to stay the same on the inside? She's going to change. She's going to change what she thinks about herself, what she thinks about her society, what she thinks about her husband. She's going to change. And she's going to know how valuable she is in Christ. And she might grow up, get to the place where she says, you know, I don't want to walk three or four feet behind my husband. I don't want to do that. And I don't want to carry that heavy table on my head while he swings his arms free. But Peter would say, submit. And he'd say submit because he'd say your behavior is scrutinized by your community. You know, all the women there carry the stuff on their heads. All of them walk three to four feet behind their husbands. All of them. And all of a sudden, she's not going to because she's saying, I don't feel that way about myself. I'm not subservient and I'm not subjected. And and so already they suspect you because they know you're a Christian and you worship another God. You're already suspected. So it is culturally expected of you. 
And all the women in this culture do this. So live honorably before God and submit to this injustice. Submit to this injustice like Jesus did. Promote the gospel always, always by your pure and reverent lifestyle. This is hard to take, isn't it? Aren't you just choking on this sometimes? I know I do. Although culture can influence what is considered pure and reverent, as we've discussed, Peter has some specifics in mind, and it's not what the women wear or how they accessorize. Their winsomeness and their attractiveness is not to be found in their clothing, and it's not to be found in their beauty, because those things change and beauty fades. And don't we know that? I can't tell you how shocking it is when I see a picture of some aging Hollywood actor or actress that's gone under the cosmetic surgeon's knife and you can't hardly recognize them when they come out. Tight skin, puffy lips, and sometimes they've wiped away all their charming, distinguishing features, all in the name of trying to hold back the march of time and to keep that beauty from fading. But it is fading. It has faded. It will fade. And probably in that culture, I remember when I was in Ramallah, they said, the thing that is valued highly is the beautiful Arab woman. I was like, well, we can't hardly even see them. But anyway, um, but apparently they really focus on their beauty. Perhaps that's what's going on here too. The women are, I mean, don't we focus on our beauty? Don't we? What's changed? So Peter is telling the women that they have a beauty that cannot be touched. It can't fade. It's a beauty of their hearts, and that's where he wants to fo- them to focus. It can't be seen like the braided hair and the golden jewelry, but it also can't be taken away, just like our inheritance. It can't be taken away. You can connect that dot. In fact, it only increases as they mature in Christ. You only become more beautiful. One of the speakers I heard on the subject, he said it this way. He said, if the house needs painting, paint it. If the house needs painting, paint it. He said, but then go inside and furnish it. Furnish it with holiness. Deck it out with character. It's Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. What might the furnishings look like? Peter talks about two of them. Okay, The first one he, he lists is gentleness. Or humility. Humility. And actually, that word humility is going to come over and over and over again. It's going to really crop up in chapter 5 because he's going to talk to the elders of the church this very same way. In fact, he talks about this a lot more later in that chapter. And he addresses the elders. I just said that. So it's not just the women that are encouraged. The Christian men are also. This gentleness is the choice to, it's a choice you make. It's a choice to use your influence for the good of others before yourself. It's a choice about how you treat other people and how you think about yourself. It's a choice. It's willing. It's not coerced. The women could have rebelled in their marriages. They could have. They could have. They could have been the hardest people to get along with, I suppose. I don't know. But... He's saying, choose gentleness, choose humility. And the second is quietness or peacefulness. It's an internal peacefulness. It doesn't mean that every woman has to 
have the same personality? That's a Stepford wife, right? (laughs) That's not the same personality. It's that piece of Christ that's inside of you. It's unshakable. It's the... It's it's uh, it has a holding people together when they're when the world around them is rocking. It's the peace that you and I we're so experienced with sharing this peace with each with each other. It's we're used to sharing and holding each other securely when our worlds rock, right? It's it's a peace that we share with our husbands, our families, our children, our neighbors. The inner beauty parlor, indeed. Good character, not just cosmetics. Gentleness, not just jewelry. Let your bling be goodness, not just gold. Why? Because someone is always watching. Not just your husband, your neighbor, your children, your co-workers, your... You fill in the blank. Your whole world is watching. And... We may uh, be all of Christ that they ever encounter for a really long time, especially in our culture, which is moving farther and farther away from those Christian roots that brought it into being. Now, I know there's a lot more to say. I have still to talk to you about the puzzling verses about Sarah. It's like, I know, this chapter's got a couple of those zingers in there, like, what are they talking about? And I haven't talked to you about the husbands yet. I I did a little bit, though, I think. But I'm teaching next week, and I'll finish next Thursday. And I'll talk about these things. Um, However, I want to end with this little illustration, because I think think it 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 is his point. Um, And I want you to walk away today with realizing that submission is an essential, and it goes into not just our marriage relationships, it goes into every relationship we have. Bringing Christ into the picture by the way that we live with reverence and respect for every human being on the planet goes into every relationship that we have. But what is non-essential is the way that it looks, right? That is determined by other things. Um, What does it mean to be reverential in our relationships and respectful In our day, our culture, our time, our place, I hope you'll talk about that in your small groups today. What does that look like in your marriages? To believers, unbelievers, broken marriages, everything. What does that look like? Um, So, anyway, uh, and then when I was talking to Joe, I was just talking about, I think the greatest gift that God has ever given us is forgiveness. It started with Christ. He He gave it to us. But then that is one of the greatest tools we have when we walk into all this difficulty. And relationships can be very difficult. They can be wonderful, but usually a lot of times there's difficulty. Forgiveness is our greatest tool. Christ showed us how to do it. And we have to exercise that. I had to exercise it in a work relationship that was terrible to me. It's still a terrible thing, but... But I was set free through the act of forgiveness. Now, this is my little story. My son was raised here at Blackmore, but he's far from the faith. I've said that so many times. I know I'm not alone in my situation, but emotionally, I, I can't, I'm still shredded about it. I will be until he comes to Christ. He and his fiance are believers in the New Age religion. Um, or whatever it is. <laughs> Movement, religion. 
Our, but our son, he knows all about Christianity. We talked. We taught. We raised him in the faith. We talked and we talked and we talked. And now his back is turned to it. So what? And what now? We don't talk anymore. We don't. We pray. And we entrust he and his fiancée to God. We don't talk to them. We talk to God about them. We never deny our faith when they come to see us. We still pray at meals. We still leave the Bibles laying around because they're laying around anyway. We don't change anything. We still celebrate Christian holidays. and Sometimes they come, but a lot of times they don't. A lot of times they come after the holidays so they don't have to see the Advent wreath and all that stuff. And we don't send them scriptures or verses or books or t-shirts. <laughs> or I even saw the coolest thing on YouTube, which was a young guy who was in the New Age movement and making tons of money. His mother was a Christian and had been praying for him forever, and he came to Christ. And he is as fervent in his, his not, in his anti-Christianness as he, he's as fervent in his walk with Christ as he was with when he was not walking with Christ. He's fervent, and he wants to bring a lot of those New Agers. He tells them what exactly they're worshiping or into. I wanted to send my son that video so bad. I wanted to punch that button, but my family said, don't you dare. Why? Because that would repel my son at this point. You know, He's comfortable coming home. Because he knows I'm not going to preach at him. So what talks to him? Our life. Our life talks to him. He's got memory seeds planted deep inside of him. And those are what I'm praying about all the time. Um, It's the silent preaching of a lovely life, as William Barclay puts it. But God has put Christian people in my son's life. I told you about their drama coach. The one they really liked. They didn't like all their drama coaches. They really liked her. She starred in Unplanned, that movie Unplanned. She was the star of that. Um, She's a devout Christian, and she really influenced them when she was their coach. And Renee's last booking, that was for the 700 Club in Virginia. She played a role in one of their reenactments, because she's an actress. So is my son. Well, we entrust them to God. But when we are with them, we don't use words. We live Christ. As you read through this text today, comb through it. Realize you're reading a household code. Try to keep in mind the culture that this was written in, and then look for the essentials. Look for the non-essentials. But in all things, all things for everybody throughout all time, remember charity. Right? Let's pray. The most difficult passages, Lord. The most difficult passages probably because they were ripped out of their context. They were not understood. Father, help the women to discuss in their groups, be in their their discussions. Uh, Perhaps they will open up about some of the difficult relationships, marriage and otherwise, that they've had to wrestle. And they have to try to... um, understand their relationship there with you in this context. They have to try to reconcile what they do, what they say, with what they believe, and how that plays out in this relationship, in these various relationships, in their marriages, in all their relationships. And we pray, oh God, you would lead them and guide them and 
protect them and cover them. 